Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. And I'm your host, Marion Ellis. Today I'm talking to Justin Mason, who runs a valuation consultancy specialising in the valuation of residential homes and investments in prime central London. We're talking high ticket stuff between 3 million and 40 million for wealth planning, taxation and litigation. So thanks for getting up early and um, having a chat. Pleasure. I'm starting to work six till nine in the morning or trying to. And it's just making a bit of a difference where I've just got a bit of time without children jumping about. Yeah, I think at the moment there's an awful lot of unburned energy amongst the young, uh, certainly in our <laughs> yeah. household, which uh, erupted yesterday in a bit of a uh, turf war over the most basic of things, Lego. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the Lego wars have started in our house, but hopefully there'll be a you know seasonal unrest, which will sort of only last a few couple more days and then they'll work out who wants what set and then they'll they'll go off to their respective corners and, and it's a new on. thing for everybody isn't it to find a different way of fitting in as a family you know yeah. and the dynamics and yeah the pecking order of life <laughs> yeah there is a certain element of that and it's no respecter certainly coronavirus of you know trying to establish importance and people's roles and careers people may people may want to have even if they're not you know we, we've almost gone back in a way to certain people being the breadwinner and but I don't feel at the moment that that's necessarily a sort of true reflection of what's going on because I think the main thing that people are having to get their head around well there are two things one is uncertainty and the second thing is the fact that they do actually have the wits and the wherewithal to get through the uncertainty you know without meaning to get too philosophical about it if we didn't have the wits and the wherewithal to get through all of this we wouldn't be sitting here now the people before us wouldn't have have survived absolutely right the way through back to the year dot so you know we're the result of people sort of taking the decision to go outside of their comfort zone and sort of get across the savannah so if we didn't have the wherewithal and we weren't connected with them then we wouldn't be you know we wouldn't be able to last very long do you know you're right and i'm seeing a lot of people really dig deep and demonstrating their resilience yeah we're all learning new skills we're all finding different ways of working yeah we're, we're really seeing a it's sort of, in many ways it'll be the making of a lot of people i think you know as, yes. as tough as this might as this might feel and i think also particularly for younger surveyors because there's a lot of people well say younger not age, but younger, new into the industry. They mm. haven't been through a recession before. They haven't th- been through really difficult times. And mm. there are some surveyors a bit longer in the tooth who've seen the ups and downs. But mm. it would be quite a shock for some people to have to adapt their businesses and plan their work and think about, well, how am I going to earn a living now? Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I agree. And it's also surprising, you were saying being long in the tooth, but, you know, if one is longer in the tooth, But actually, if you think about it, when was the last time we had something like this? Well, you know, the global financial crisis. So what's that? 2007, 2008. If somebody was 24 at that time, having sort of come through the system, 
they're in the mid thirties now. So if you've got people in the mid thirties that, that this is, you know, is catching them wrong footed. So those parents, you know, some of whom might have children who are sort of about to go to secondary school. So it's actually quite a big shock, you know, how how long ago it was going back to the last crisis. But I think, you know, there's certainly at the moment, it's almost like a lifestyle change. It's a pause. I do think things will get better, but I don't think they'll go back to what they were before. I think there are a number of really big changes, but there are a number of things it throws up. Certainly for me as a, as a valuer, there are a number of things that it throws up that one needs to be aware of, and that is managing your client's expectations about what you can and what you can't do mm. in this kind of environment. Also, and nobody's talking about this, limiting your liability, not necessarily because of coronavirus, but because of things like, you know, you can't go out and see the property. So you can't offer the same amount of liability on something like that. So you've got to be extremely careful, I think, about what you're offering, how much you're charging for it. The whole package needs to be thought about, including also the assumptions which go behind the valuation as well. If you were exchanging today, what would the situation be? Who would this person be? How would they be funding it? Yeah, and it's really important that you write down those assumptions and have some clear thinking behind it. Because when there is a problem or when somebody comes to do an audit or have a look at your work, you know, for for whatever reason, it's got to be really clear so that anybody can understand what your thinking was at that moment in that time. One of the things I always advise surveyors and small businesses to do is to just keep a record of what's going on in the world or in the market at the time. Mm. I remember when I worked in my, uh, when I started out as a surveyor and I worked in uh, an office in Croydon and we had a big set of shelves and it had newspapers, you know, the monthly property weekly newspapers and um, the new build development um, brochures and things. And when we went paperless, obviously all of that, that went. And so you sort of lost touch a little bit with what was happening. And when I've dealt with claims in the past, you could sort of see, you know, the, the comparables, you could see the the site notes, but you didn't really get a sense of well, what was going on in, in the world at the time. And one of the things I think is quite useful for people, whether you work for yourself or not, is just almost to do like a, a monthly report, you know, almost yeah. like a one pager, what's <clears throat> been significant, what's happened, what's happened in your local area, and just file that as like a monthly report of, of, of what's going on. Even, you know, things about how you're feeling. Maybe you've had ill, Ill health. Maybe you've been in lockdown and arguing over yeah. Lego. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, whatever's going on for you, because that really does help sometimes put into context the difficult circumstances that you're having to do your job mm. as to what's going on. And um, it can help you as much as, as, any, as anyone else. So tell me a bit about your business and how long have you worked for yourself? I've worked for myself for just over two years, so uh, two and a quarter years. I started the business after spending a decade at Knight Frank in their central valuation team covering prime central London. And, and halfway through that, I'd built, started to build a profile as an expert witness. So I decided the next natural step would be to start my own practice and go out on my own. So for the last two years, I've been valuing predominantly property in central London, anything really between sort of three and 40 million. It's mostly single assets rather than doing sort of big portfolios and things like that. They're mostly properties where there's a bit of sensitivity needed. It might be for tax purposes, wealth planning. It might be a divorce. It might be contentious trust. I and um, I also act 
as an expert witness in cases where I'm part of a team defending surveyors or lawyers. So it's interesting work. It's sort of, it's the next sort of jump on. The, the only thing I don't do much of is secured lending anymore. I do advise some banks, which are the banks that are mostly relationship-driven, sort of traditional relationship-driven banks, where there's a very big lead into any job. And But I do go further afield. I mean, I do the odd thing. I was in Oxford not so long back. I've even valued a converted lighthouse on the Norfolk coast. I've been down to Kent. I mean, there, I do tend to work as part of a team. I'll put a small team together to work on the project. But for me, the main drivers were quite obvious, quite often what people do. I wanted independence. I wanted something which where I felt I could stand on my own two feet and where it would test me to create a business, create a brand. And I also, in the end, I also wanted to do it for the main purpose. And the main purpose for me was to have that connection with my clients. So I would say that the reason I do it is uh, I do like people to be able to sleep at night. And that could be anyone from the very wealthy right the way down to a mainstream mainstream person. And it's a thread which has gone right, right the way through my career. When I started out as a commercial surveyor working for a firm called Donaldson's over in the West Country, even though I'm in East Anglia. So this is another case, you know, another recession. Had to move from one side of the country to the other. And then I worked right the way through into through the telecoms bubble, then worked my way through on the ladders for eServe, then Ekins, who still survived at that point. And then I worked for a very small outfit called Lexicon back in the day. Uh, who were an independent, and then I had the opportunity to work for Knight Frank. So I've had the the opportunity really to see all types of property right the way through from studio flats in the East End right the way through to multi-million pound mansions in central London. It's been a really interesting career. I was thinking about you last night, thinking, what could I, what, what questions do I really want to ask you? <laughs> and <laughs> and I've, you know, I've valued property. I started out as a, what I'd call an ordinary surveyor, in, yeah. in Croydon, you know, doing the secure lending. But I, I got to a stage in my career where I would countersign high-value property. And I, the question I wanted to ask, to ask you or to talk about was, how scary is it to value property that's multi-million? Because for, for many jobbing surveyors, we just, we'll just inspect and value ordinary property. Just, you know, the ordinary property that we might live in. And so it's it's quite easy to have a connection with the customer and uh, client and what, what they're going through. And when yeah. you start to get to high value property, is it a different or, or question? Do you think it's a different ball game or is it no different? Because when I started to do that kind of work and it was more supportive work so I wasn't inspecting the properties, it was more of a, an audit countersign check. What I started to realise is, they might be a bit posher. <laughs> the comps might be a bit more difficult to come by, but they were no different. And when I looked at the pictures, the rooms were still messy <laughs> compared to compared to others. <laughs> but a lot of um, a lot of um, surveyors uh, that I meet, they sort of have this sort of wrestle with: Am I a surveyor? Am I a valuer? People tend to sort of wear one hat or, or the other to kind of work that they're um, that they're in. And I see a lot of students and young, when I say young, you know, new surveyors coming through who shy away from valuation work. And I guess because it hasn't quite clicked yet how it works. We talk about being an art, not a science, of course. And they shy away from it. And I, I think that's a, that's a shame because I think valuation is amazing. I don't always understand all of it. <laughs> you know, I, mm. I haven't had the ex- wealth of experience you have. But I do think it's really interesting because for me, valuation is about people mm. and their perception and what they, what they understand. But that was, that was my, sorry, that was a really long question, wrong wobbly question. No, no. Do you find it scary 
Well, there are several sort of strands to that. I, I think if you didn't find it scary, you wouldn't really be respecting the issue and what you're trying to do. In terms of experience, I mean, I've got a long way to go. There's a lot more in the world of valuation I would like to do, especially with investment valuation and getting my head around that. But ultimately, I think what you're doing is um, you're combining several different skill sets. And the main one is you've got to be a detective. So actually, as a valuer, you are like a surveyor. You're a detective and you're using your skills at detection and your experience to know where to look for information to get that information, put it together, and then stand back and actually say, well, I've got all these different things, and they're all symptoms, if you like, and what, what's the underlying cause? So it's a bit like you know when you're trying to detect damp in a building, and you might have several different reasons which are causing it, or condensation, or mold, or whatever, or dry rot. And you actually sort of stand back, and you're trying to put them together in order to work out exactly what's going on. You're taking, you, you know, you're, you're trying to actually establish a root cause. And the same is true with the figures. But I do agree with you that it's you're using those skills of analysis. And then what you're doing is you're trying to uh, you're, you're trying to exercise empathy. So you're trying to empathize with somebody who's got a totally different life experience to your own. And that's possibly why some of the younger surveyors shy away from valuation, because I think it's something that it, it, it's, it does actually accumulate. There may be other reasons as well, which might include you know, and, I, and I'm going to put this absolutely bluntly, if you do a lot of work for lenders, quite often the decision as to who they're going to use isn't theirs. It goes with the client. They don't really have much skin in the game as far as the choice of the value is concerned. So they don't really care. They're, they're, they're looking for an insurance policy that's part of their underwriting. And as a result of that, you've got a business model where the person doing the work isn't actually getting the recognition for the things which matter to them and the things that matter to the person carrying out the work quite often will be quality and getting feedback and having a direct relationship with the client which they don't have so for me that's why I don't do very much lending anymore the only stuff I do is relationship driven because that it doesn't feed me it doesn't feed what I want out of a career so it is scary working at the top end going back to your original point it, but you you use those skills of analysis, you use all the information you can get hold of, you test it, and that's where the, the background as an expert witness comes in. You know, it's got to stand up, you've got to check it, you've got to go through the land registry when the land registry reopens to actually get your data. You've got to then put together a model which which stands up. So you've got to have considered how all of the properties differ from one another. So same skills as mainstream property. Then what you've got to do, especially in London, they talk about rates if it's appropriate for the thought process. You then get a range of rates. You then go back to the evidence and look at it in terms of overall value to narrow your range. And then you also look at to see what else is on the market because you know I will always stand by sort of saying you've got to have a good idea of what demand and supply is because you are valuing at a snapshot in time. You're not valuing as if all of your comps are on the market at the same time, which is another mistake. All of us mm, make. Yeah, yeah. You've got to look and actually look at the demand and supply. So it goes back again to your point about an awareness of the market. And then you, what you've got to do is, you, you know, if you've got something that's smaller and shabbier, but on a better street, you've got to actually sort of look to see where your ceilings are and other things like that. So it all goes into the mix. And then you have to be able to present that in plain English to the client. The thing that I probably find the hardest thing of all is making sure that my reports are in plain English and that they, they actually stand up and one's able to sort of go through them and the, the the lay reader, if you like, were able to go through and actually pick up the thread and understand it. You've done your job of reporting, communicating why you why you think it's a certain value. 
Do you know that that is so important? And a lot of people talk about plain English and they've no idea what it is. Um, I'll put a link in the in the show, in the show notes to the plain English campaign. Yeah, um, it's um, it's basically a, a a standard. You can get a crystal mark for your whatever sort of written copy it is that it, it it's easy to read by the yeah. by the average person. And yet, so many surveyors and people I talk to say they use plain English and they don't. Not really. They don't even adopt the principles. Sometimes reports can be quite um, condescending or patronising in in terms of how, how you know sort of how they're written, yeah. and then they've sort of thrown in some of these standard paragraphs that are so jargon and poorly written. Mm. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it so many times. <laughs> one of the one of the uh, tips I always um, give to people is if you do have your own standard paragraphs or your own terms that you've got, is actually to have a copywriter look at them. You can get a, a decent copywriter for quite a reasonable fee yep. to go through and just write them. Not not so much not so much that the other person can read it, but actually so that it sounds authentic. It sounds like it's coming from you, not just here's some standard text that I've got that I always use and I've copied it from somewhere. Because when you read a report, you do pick up on that. Even your average customer can tell the difference between you giving your advice and your thoughts and some standard paragraphs you've chucked in to cover yourself mm-hmm. or that you always use. So mm-hmm. actually writing a piece that's that's fluent and sounds authentic actually helps with confidence for the person, to, you know, the person reading it so they understand, you know, what, what they're going to get out of the report. Yeah, we we have to be able to communicate what we think. You know, first of all, you've got to establish the facts, go out and get the facts then you form your opinion and then you have to report that whole process right the way through from start to finish and you have to write the report for the reader it's a bit <laughs> it's a bit like uh, i always love the question that somebody once put me to me who do you think your competitors are and this was just about business and, oh, well i think they're x y and z and i went okay now who do you think your clients think your competitors are oh uh, well they think no, it's x y and z okay good well Therefore, your real competition is what you think it is. It doesn't matter what you think it is. It matters what your clients think it is. So it's about, you know, it doesn't matter what you've put in your report. It's what your clients read and whether or not they're actually, they can understand it and it has meaning for them. So, and that will change over time. So if we're working from, I don't know, Eakin's standard (laughs) or Connell's standard phrases circa 1997, you know, they're not they're not actually going to be the right kind of thing because they're off their time. But you also touched on something else, which I think is important. At this moment in time, people, it's a frightening time. There's the need to keep cash flow going, but it doesn't now more than ever. It's the it's really important to work on the business, not just in the business. And for a lot of smaller surveyors, they're probably thinking, right, okay, you know, sole practitioners, I have enough trouble anyway. Sort of, you know. No, you, you have to make sure you're actually doing this at this moment in time because it's very going to be very, very easy to become invisible because the noise out there, especially on social media, is getting more and more of it. And so, you, you know, it's got to be really well targeted and it's got to be the case that you keep the profile up. Um, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think one thing that you, you mentioned earlier on actually was purpose. What's your purpose as a, as yeah. a surveyor or valuer? And I don't think a lot of surveyors have actually thought about that. I mean, I don't fit the, the, the typical uh, cliche of a charter surveyor. I've always been conscious of that. I'm not a sporty guy. 
I'm not a hail fellow mate, well met. You know, I love what I do. You know, for me, a history book is what it's all about or something else like that nature. So I don't, and I think surveyors, again, there's also the other thing as well, which is you were saying like surveyors, you know, don't really know why they're doing it. Well, that, that's the really funny question, you know, having that sort of taboo conversation with somebody, when did you decide to be a chartered surveyor? I didn't. It just sort of happened. Everybody says that. <laughs> I fell into it. I fell into it. My role at, at Blue Box is slightly different because I'm here to help surveyors and valuers as, as a business, but sort of B2B rather than rather than B2C. But we do it because we want people to live in safe, warm, dry homes. And we can help you do that. And um, it's taken us a little while, but that's what's important too, is it's just our way of, of doing that, of feeding into that sort of bigger vision. But not every surveyor, I think, has thought about their their purpose and or perhaps even gone down that um, self-development or business development route because they're just working in their business, doing the surveys, thinking it's all about you know being technical and getting the next job in. And actually, this time could be a real blessing for some quite difficult I think though if you've never if you've mm. never done it to think okay yeah. well why really really why am I a surveyor why am I a valuer why do I do this why do I get out of bed and do this the first thought was probably would probably be because I need to earn money and keep a roof over my head there's yeah. a lot of um, things going around on social media about um, pausing in the moment and what will be will be and I read it and just think yeah but we need to earn money <laughs> to keep a roof over our heads <laughs> And that's the the, uh, the the driver, I guess, from there is fear and panic and that insecurity, uh, of course. Yeah. But if we're not clear on our purpose and why we do what we do, then it's really hard to convey that to clients and to ensure that we've got the clients, the right clients working with us. You know, we can say no to some clients. Yeah, I agree. Yes, I think there are several stages that anyone goes through, and there are also stages of life. I mean, they're, they're, you know, there are lots and lots of people who've written on this subject far more far more clever than me. But they, you know, I, I having sort of gone out on my own, the main driver for me at that time was independence. But I'd gone through the sort of circle. So you know, having left university, the first thing I needed to do was to put food on the table and keep a roof over my head. And, you know, I really feel for younger people at the moment. I also wanted to socialize. I am an introvert, but I wanted to socialize. I wanted to be out there. I wanted to form social connections and business connections beyond school and university and and everything else. So the main drivers were, yeah, you know, the survival things. Then professional qualification, you know, wanted to get professionally qualified, wanted to go through the whole thing of uh, TPC as it was in those days and, and making sure that I had the letters after my name and that would be the thing that would take me up the pole, you know, going to surveyor, associate, partner, etc. Then independence, you know, thinking, yes, I want to do this, but I want to do it for the people I want to do it for and I want to actually run my own business. I want to show that I can do this. And then finally, you end up with purpose. So you come around to those things. It's a natural thing, but you do come back to the point, which is, yes, you have to put food on the table. But that comes back again to confidence. I think, you know, one has to believe in one's ability to go out and say, right, this is the kind of thing I want to do. And it's so important to get it right and realize that I want to do it for these kinds of people. If you're doing business and your differentiators are cost and time, that's not a sustainable business model. It just isn't. And there are lots and lots of people in our profession who do it. 
but it, it, it will eventually peter out. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine who runs a large commercial team for a multinational practice. And he said to me yesterday, there is no profit in it at all. I am, you know, this was the last year that I was really able to make much of a profit. And most of that has just evaporated. So it's not the writings on the wall. It's just the business model has to change. What I think will happen, though, is I think there will, it will be difficult for people to start businesses on their own, whether or not we go down the line that a lot of law firms and estate agents were starting to go down where people were self-employed remains to be seen because I don't think people are going to have the confidence to go out and say start something where they they act as a as a consultant to another firm and and then you know run the risk of uh, coronavirus coming back and then getting no support from any corner but we shall see how it goes over time um, but it is so important to know why you're doing things you know why you have your purpose for the business and and because that will be the thing that as you say that gets you out of bed in the morning but it's crucially and with the help of the copywriter, if you're being authentic and putting out the right message, you're getting the right clients in who are loyal, and then you have brand ambassadors, and then it goes on from there. And so the business model based on loyalty, I think, is the, is, is it's pretty much the only one. And that's true, you know, at the moment, surveyors, we should be mixing it with other professionals and other people who just own businesses, because that in itself will help you with keeping the business going, making sure you're doing the right thing and reaching the right people. So how do you network? I network in a variety of ways. I mean, I, I keep in very close contact with my clients and referrers. So a lot of them are private client lawyers, tax lawyers, and uh, family lawyers. But I also work with people who do contentious trust and probate. And I just get out and see them. So I would spend you know, a day out and about seeing people, just talking to them about what's going on, what's going on in their world. Because I find also, you, you know, we were talking about empathy, you know, the decisions whether or not to keep a property, what, how somebody's, what somebody's attitude is to the property market. They, quite often those referrers will know exactly what's going on with the principal. Occasionally, I've got one or two, you know, clients who are the principals, but most of my business, if you like, is B2B. But it's a long-term aim to get a lot more B2C work. I go out to events. So I'll go out to sort of, you know, networking groups. Uh, if they have an event or something of that nature, I occasionally travel over to places like the Channel Islands, Switzerland, that kind of thing as well. But a lot of it is business cards. So in terms of networking, just getting out there, can I come and see you? Would you like to have a Zoom call? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's and, and people at the moment, it's a great time because people are bored. So they need content, they need face-to-face contact, they need all kinds of things really to, to sort of keep them in touch. So actually, it's a really good time for me to work on the business. So at the moment, I'm you know I've worked a weekend because I've I've got reports to to get out and I've got people to to speak to this week. Whether or not it be the case in a few weeks' time, I don't know. But that's that's certainly the current state of play. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, there's a a rush for some people to use social media when actually, do you know what? People just want to get to know you and and speak to you. And, yeah. You know, it, see the whites of your eyes almost, and just know that trust that I can trust you with my business, and you will help me. And and a sales transaction, which is you know a service, is what we're offering, is as simple as that. We don't need necessarily 
you know, lots of fancy websites and, you know, <laughs> lots of memes on, on, on social media or to be a technical authority and write papers. Sometimes it's just about being really confident with what you do and being able to convey that to a person. Uh, and as simple as you write, you know, business cards, how simple. It is. I mean, I, I was lucky to have had the time at Night Frank, but the main thing that sort of works to me is referral, I think. So uh, I keep a really close eye on people who have taken the decision to get behind me and go with my business. And, you know, I owe everything in business to those people because they took a chance on me or they recommended me to somebody else. The second group of people I work really closely with are the people who've had the benefit of one of the reports, but haven't actually, weren't the person to originally make the decision to run with me or to recommend me. So, but I really just focus on those people. I don't work on the other stuff so much. So social media and stuff like that, you know, I put out stuff recently, which I thought was really important, standing up and saying, I'm not going out anymore. And then saying, this is, you know, you now got to think about the basis of the valuation and the basis of your terms of engagement. And this is where I would start. But so that's probably where I would draw the line. And you'll notice I haven't mentioned, apart from a rather flippantly uh, post, uh, haven't mentioned the word corona at all. So that's where I'd sort of start, keeping it sort of absolutely targeted on the people who matter and not really sort of spinning out too much stuff amongst all the chatter. As I said, it's very, very noisy out there. So you have to make sure that you're still seen, but you have to be seen in the right way. So don't get embroiled in the chatter, as it were. Yeah. Then I really think sort of it comes down to the quality of the work, you know, keeping the standards there and everything else. That's Those are the really important things to make sure that you're keeping an eye on. Because otherwise, you know, there could be, as you say, you know, you have to have all your documentation done right, no change in standards. And we're all finding it hard because we're all discombobulated. We're you know, it takes twice as long to do anything. So another reason why I was working over the weekend was because I had to make sure that absolutely everything, there was no drop in quality because I was also homeschooling last week and I was also helping out on this, that and the other. And also my thoughts were being sort of diverted to the current situation, which is another thing which happens, I think, with everybody over time. Um, you're absolutely right. And that's where where the claims and the problems then come in yeah. when you're trying to just juggle too much and you're not yeah. giving yourself the time to do the reports, do the, the valuation work that you that you need to do. Can I ask you about referral fees? Do you pay mm. referral fees? What do you think about referral fees? Because there's a lot of a lot of discussion between surveyors over whether it's the right thing to do or the, or not the right thing to do. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you have to declare everything. So, you know, that's yeah, yeah. that's the first thing I would say. I think you have to make a very clear decision about whether or not you think it's going to bias what you're going to do. Because let's face it, if you had somebody who once in a blue moon said, here's somebody I know, can you do a job for them? And then they expected something for it. And then they came back time and time again. That's not really a very healthy situation because they are asking you to do the job and there's an expectation that you won't prejudice their relationship with their client because it will be their client from their point of view. And I think that's where there can be trouble. I have occasionally paid the odd referral fee before where somebody has come to me with a client and they've said, look, can you help them out? And they are somebody who is completely transactional. So they're an acquisition agent. And I haven't had a problem with that. And that has been, you know, there's probably like one or two of those in the year. And frankly, 
the amount they're getting is, you know, it's a nice meal out or it's some shopping or whatever, but that would be it. It's not a large sum at all. But I don't do it, if you like, it doesn't form a big part of my business at all. It's not something that my business is reliant on. There's also a very good reason for that. I don't want somebody between me and my market. It's not healthy to be at, you know, at the far end. And without, I'm not knocking it, but it's not my business model. That's why I don't get work through a panel manager, because I want to have a direct relationship with my client. I also like the feedback from the client. You know, I, I ask for feedback from the client as part of my process. It helps me change. It helps me adapt. I don't want the 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 encumbrance of there being an intermediary. So I try to avoid it. So I'd say on balance, occasionally, yes, but I don't really want it to form a big part of my business model. And I think if somebody were in business on their own, build a reputation for yourself, go out and get your own clients, really work on those clients and make sure that they are uh, um, somebody who will be referring you, you and singing your praises. Do a great job for them. Keep in contact with them. You know, and no, you know, the three-month call and my, you know, my administrator rings me up and says, have you done your three-month call to so-and-so? So I've got somebody actually charged with doing that. My annual call, you know, going and seeing them, the, all of that kind of thing, stick close to them. I mean, part of the problem with valuation is that this, the clients, we have a very thin and crispy client base. And it's a pay-as-you-go model. So it takes a lot of work, you know, to get any proper mileage. It, it does take a lot of work. And so there is always a temptation to go to sources like find a surveyor or something like, or some other model, which refers stuff to you. But there's no substitute for having the direct relationship. People might think, well, I can't do that. I'm not a people person. You are a people person. You're doing the valuation for a person. So they're going to respond to you. And if you do a good job, you know, there's nothing better. There's no better marketing collateral than the job itself, than the report itself. You're absolutely right. I talk about um, surveyor superpowers. Yeah. You know, <laughs> as, a, as a surveyor, your superpower is to inspect the building or, you know, might be a whiz on valuation and know your, know your market. Yeah. And yet sometimes we feel that we're not people... Uh, people, persons, you know, um, that we can't do clients. A, a lot of surveyors I've spoken to, they just either through their career, they haven't had the experience or been exposed, particularly if they work for a, for a corporate and they're doing run of the mill jobs. They've had a complaint before and now they don't feel very confident talking to a, to a customer. And when it, but when it comes to working for yourself, you've, you've got to know the whole, the whole shebang, you know, you've really got yeah. to understand the ins and outs of what's required to run that business. And your superpower might be specialist valuations of high value property. For you, obviously, client relationships are going to be key to that. But for some people, it could just be, you know, yes, you talking to the client makes a difference, but you don't have to go out there and sell your soul. You're not a salesperson. If you're going out there talking about your work, you can talk about it passionately because that's what you what you do. I think where people get confused or perhaps don't think about it properly is that, you need to just get support in your business. You talk, but you've got an administrator and I'm sure you've got people to help you with various different things. You've got to outsource some of the stuff. Yeah. You know, having someone to remind you to do a three-month check-in call, that's not a bad thing. You know, and yet we don't allow yeah. ourselves to outsource and get support. And where you've got the most support in your life is where you'll be most successful. 
So if, if your superpower isn't, <laughs> you know, organizing the admin, do you know what? You can get someone to help you with that. That'll help you get yeah. better. And then you, then you can move forward. You have to stop thinking about it as being, I'm asking this person to do something instead of me. And a lot of people try to lead by doing everything themselves. You, you, you can't look at it that way. I look upon everybody else that works with me as amplifying me. So I, I don't lose ownership. I can't lose ownership because, you know, it's a bit like the, you know, turn the ship around, the, the David Marco book, which, which is really where what you're doing is you're, you're giving people, you still have the responsibility, but you are, and all you're doing is authorizing other people. You're enabling them to do what they do. As long as they're clear about what they're doing, they have all the information, they, you know, you then have to let them run with it. But ultimately, what they're doing is they're amplifying you. And for any business, what you're trying to do is get it to the stage where it can run as, much, as well as it can do without you. And that's, that's more of a, you know, as you know, from acting as an MD, that's something where you're, you are actually sort of standing back from the business itself. But for me, I mean, I work as part of a team. So I have Natalie who is an ex-legal PA who works for me and she's mum and she works remotely for me. And, you know, she's the person that makes sure that my quality and a lot of my administration is absolutely top-notch. And she's, she's wonderful. I also have two other people that I work with who do all of my auditing and vetting. And that's, I also work with Blue Box, of course, who do my sort of annual audit. But on a day-to-day -day basis and my vetting, I work with two people that I used to work with at Night Frank. Uh, they're both now left Night Frank and um, they do all of my sort of vetting. Everything is checked before it goes out. And I also work with other people from time to time. I have a marketing consultant who is somebody who, you know, literally works out of their sort of spare room. And she's absolutely fantastic. She keeps my marketing on track. She helps me sort of put my events together. But the other thing as well is she also has access to a copywriter who helps me with everything else that I do as far as that's concerned and keeps her being consistent. So that's just the thin end of the wedge. I always have a photographer who works with me. I've got somebody else who does film. But they're all part of your sort of network of people that you have in the business. You know, a really important one is my accountant. You know, my accountant was the person that I started out with. They know exactly what I'm doing. They, 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 they also have worked elsewhere as a, as a CFO. So they know, you know, businesses from the top down, from small businesses right the way through to larger concerns. And they're able to help also with business connections. And that's the other thing. When you, when you work as part of a team like that, they, everybody's pulling together and you, can, you get all the other spin-offs that work with it as well. So it's, um, you're never on your own, but you have to look at it as being other people amplifying what you do. So, you know, if I were to have somebody else do this, it would enable me to do that. And therefore that we're much more effective as a result. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.